All of us, one way or the other, struggle with a sense of significance. Are we significant? Are we living a life that's significant? And the world gives us all kinds of ideas about what it means to be significant. How many hits you get on your, uh, whatever you post on Facebook, how many friends you've got on Facebook, etc. If you get it on television, you really become significant, you name it. But what really is significant from God's perspective? I like to call it the divine paradox. God likes to take what is seemingly insignificant, and when he gets through with it, it has become divinely significant. You watch the video. Significance, what does it mean to you? To physician Martha Myers, significance meant laying down her life in the volatile Islamic country of Yemen, way before it was abruptly taken from her. For journeyman Bob Lane, it meant an isolated life in the scorching Amazon jungle, but not from his God and the people he daily served. He hunted for his own food, traveled by canoe from one inaccessible village to another, and made an incredible impact in a very remote part of our world. For Eric Reese, significance means living in the dangerous slums of Brazil, literally dodging bullets and sharing the hope of Jesus to the down and out. And for this wealthy, educated woman, Lottie Moon, the life of others, the grimy, poor, and disregarded of China, outweighed her very own. Lottie literally starved to death so that others could live. In 1912, during a very difficult time of war and famine in China, she gave everything she had to help her starving Chinese friends. On Christmas Eve, weighing no more than 50 pounds, her body could not go on anymore. Each year, in honor of what Lottie did, Millions give to the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering for International Missions. But there's more to Lottie's life than just her death. She was proficient in six languages and became one of the first women to receive a Master of Arts degree. She was not afraid to go to China as one of the first single female missionaries. Lottie was also willing to say what she thought. She fought for the opportunity to speak God's word boldly and vigorously appealed for more workers and for churches to support them passionately with their prayers and financial gifts. Lottie worked tirelessly to serve God unhindered and, in the process, made a mind-boggling impact that broke the social norms of her day, both here in the U.S. and in China. Lottie led in the campaign to end the torturous practice of binding feet, a Chinese custom to enhance a woman's appearance that often led to infection, illness, and sometimes death. Like Lottie, there have been others who have made an undeniable impact upon our world. They have brought slavery to an end, healed the sick, and given God's word to the nations. What about us? How will you and I define significance? Will we sit on the sidelines and idly watch as others like Lottie Moon take Christ to the radical fringes of missions? Or will we get in the game supporting those who are reaching out to the millions upon millions of people who remain in poverty, physically and spiritually? You can make a significant difference. You can do all things through Christ to change our world. But the choice is yours. Lottie Moon followed Jesus, gave her all, and made a lasting impact. Will you do the same? God loves to take the seemingly insignificant and use it to accomplish the divinely significant. That's the divine paradox that he likes to work with. And he did it with the birth of his son. I'd like for you to turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. 
Luke's Gospel chapter 2, because we're going to see here with Mary and Joseph, just like the folks you just heard about in the video, that God took a young couple, seemingly very insignificant, in a very insignificant little town called Bethlehem, and made a divinely significant impact on the world. But as we look at what God did with Mary and Joseph, we're going to see and get some real clues as to how God works in our lives. And you see, if you and I don't get in the flow of what God's doing and the way He's doing it, we're going to miss what God's doing. We're not going to be a part of what He's doing. But if we can understand how God works, we'll live with a whole lot lot less frustration and anger, and we will begin to live with the satisfaction that comes from being in the flow of what the Lord's doing. Now, as you turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, we're going to begin with verse 1. Let me give you some historical background to this passage of Scripture. Some of the things that are mentioned here as I'll begin to read. First of all, refers to a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus, who was the ruler of the Roman Empire at that time. His name is actually Cavius Octavius. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar. He died when Jesus was a young adult. And his title there, Caesar Augustus, the second part Augustus, is drawn from a name called, or title called Agur, A-U-G-U-R. Now the significance of it is this, he is the first Roman emperor in the history of the Roman Empire to take on this title. And the reason he took it on was because the title is a religious sanction that meant someone was divine. And what he actually was doing was moving the Roman emperor to a position of being considered divine, which leads eventually to emperor worship. It's very interesting that he's doing this at the same time that Jesus is born. He ruled from 31 B.C. to A.D. 14. Now, I'll mention a guy by the name of Quirinius. He served two terms as governor, 6 to 40 B.C. and then 86 to 9. The reason I mention that is there's been a lot of dispute over how he could have been governor at the same time Jesus was born. Scholars have discovered that he had two governorships. Speaks of Nazareth and the town of Bethlehem. They are about 80 miles apart from each other. And then it's going to talk about Judea. These were territories that once belonged to the tribes of Judah, Dan, Benjamin, and Simeon. So it was a high concentration historically of Jews who would live there. It speaks of a census that's going to be taken. The reason for the census was that basically the Roman government was attempting to get everybody listed so they could tax them. And as Jews made their way to their ancestral homes, Joseph and Mary would have made their way to Bethlehem, which was their ancestral home. They were doing so so they could register, and it was Rome's way of enforcing, not only are we going to tax you, but we're going to remind you that you are a servant of the Roman Empire. And that's the reason you've got to pay taxes. Now, this place they go to, Bethlehem, was where David, who'd been the great king of Israel, had tended the his sheep out there in the fields around that town years before this. The inn that's referred to here was not something like Motel 6 or the Holiday Inn, etc. It would have basically been a glorified boarding house. Bethlehem means house of bread. It was located five miles southwest of Jerusalem. And it was a place where David was anointed the king of Israel, or the soon-to-be king of Israel. That background, let's join the story. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. 
the one considered to be divine, that all the world should be registered. Rome ruled the known world at that time. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. My sermon outline is in your bulletin. I invite you, if you would, to follow along. Now, I need you to do something for me in this message this morning. I need you, if you would, to take all of the preconceived notions that you've probably been raised with about this story and saw a lamb aside. Because part of the problem with our preconceived notions about the birth of Jesus is that it's sort of been woven together, this beautiful, quaint story that fits in real with all of our Christmas carols, etc., etc. The problem is that a lot of that is inaccurate to what actually happened here. Living the will of God, paradox number one, can be very difficult. Living the will of God can be very difficult. And that was the case in this story. Notice what happens here. Verse 1, it says that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, what was it about those days? In those days you have Rome ruling the entire world, and this Caesar Augustus basically went to the Roman Senate and said, I want you to give me this title that means I'm divine. Now, when the Roman Senate gave him this title, Rome ruled went from being basically a republic to becoming a dictatorship. So you now have a dictator who has come on the scene that's ruling everybody who thinks he's a god. And he's going to move eventually to have the entire emperorship worship the emperor of Rome as a god. That's the kind of political atmosphere in which the birth of Jesus takes place. That's the kind of atmosphere you've got when Mary and Joseph, this little couple in Nazareth, get word you got to pack up everything and you got to head to Bethlehem 80 miles away because the emperor, the dictator, says you better go down there and do it. And if you don't do it, you're going to get to meet one of those Roman soldiers and they just love cutting off people's heads and stabbing them. So you don't have much choice but to comply with what Rome is telling you about. Now let's get the context of the story. Here you've got Mary and Joseph. Angel Gabriel has come to Mary and said, you're with child, you're going to bear the Messiah. God has called you to carry the very Son of God in your womb. Goes to Joseph in a dream, same angel. Joseph, Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. You guys are called of God. You couldn't ask for a couple that was more dedicated to the Lord, committed to the Lord, following the will of God. And then Caesar comes to them and says, you better get to Bethlehem and get to Bethlehem quickly and you've got to register so you can pay your taxes to the Roman government because you're under the authority of Rome. I thought they were under the authority of God. 
Not under the authority of Rome, but they're having to act like they're the, under the authority of Rome. And then as they make their way, we always have this picture of, you know, Joseph and Mary, and she's on a donkey. The problem is there's nothing in the Bible that tells us they even had a donkey. They would not have had a horse, because back in those days, if you had a horse or a stallion, you had to have money, and they didn't have that kind of money. We don't even know if they had a donkey. Now, ladies, I want you to imagine, all of you that have bore children... Can you imagine being close to nine months pregnant and you've either got to walk or ride a donkey 80 miles on a rough road? How many of y'all would want, just couldn't wait to do something like that? You'd probably wonder if you would get thrown into labor on the way down the road to do that. My mother would be here in a few weeks when she was pregnant. It was either with me or my sister. I think it was my sister. She was running. My sister was running 30 days late. And you got to realize my mom was a country girl, grew up outside of Danville. She went out back and chopped wood trying to throw herself into labor so she could get over this thing, etc. And so you got Mary and Joseph here in this situation. And they are having to make their way in hot Palestinian conditions. 80 miles on foot there to Bethlehem. Now, I know we sing all kinds of wonderful Christmas carols, and we think about them having this wonderful journey, but I want to suggest something to you this morning. I'm not so sure the conversation between Mary and Joseph may not have gone this way. You know, I don't understand why God can send an angel to tell us that I'm going to get pregnant, but he can't even provide a decent mode of transportation to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It would seem to me that if I'm carrying the Son of God, I could at least get a good, lousy donkey to do this, or even more, a stallion, because if the Roman government has stallions for their generals, can't I at least ride a stallion to get down there? But no transportation whatsoever from God. It's hot. we got to go 80 miles. In those days, it would take four days on foot to make that trip. So what, what is it with God? He comes and gives us this really nice you know, thing that's going to happen here, and it's going to be grand and glorious and all of that, but then he just seems to disappear completely when it comes time to actually your foot hitting the road. And see, folks, that's a struggle so many times you and I are in. There's one of the most difficult places in life to be at is when you believe you are following the call of God and the will of God and you feel like God has abandoned you in the middle of carrying out what you understood to be His will. When your circumstances seem to tell you that God gave you a call, gave you a commission, showed up in your life, told you to do something, and then walked away from you. And if you haven't been there, sooner or later you're going to be there. All of us, at one point or another, if we get serious about following Jesus, are going to feel like He abandoned us in the middle of trying to live out what He told us to do. And that's exactly where Joseph and Mary are. They get to Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was the ancestral home, which meant that somebody in Bethlehem was related to them. And they go all over the place and they can't find any place to stay, which would indicate that at least some of their distant relatives who have been there weren't interested in keeping them. 
So they end up going to this boarding house. And the guy that's running the boarding house says, I'm sorry, I don't have any place for you, but I do have a stable. Now, we think of the stable in terms of a nice, you know, little stable out back. It was probably a cave. In fact, the Church of the Nativity, which is where historians think Jesus may have been born, Constantine built a chapel over it, and it's basically over a cave. So, good chance Jesus was born in a cave. So, we got this cave out here in Bethlehem you can go and stay at. Again, isn't that a strange way for God to work? You get to go stay in a cave. Living the will of God is tough. And God doesn't do it the way we would expect and anticipate that He's going to do it. Look at all the obstacles that they are facing. They got the journey they have to make. When they get to Bethlehem, there's no place for them to stay, so they end up in this cave with a bunch of donkeys and straw, obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. Now, what do you and I normally say when the obstacles start coming? Well, it must not be the will of God. I don't know how many times as a pastor through the years I haven't heard that. We set out to do something for the Lord, and there's a problem and there's an obstacle, so we say, well, it must not be the will of God because we got this obstacle and we got this problem, we got this issue we face, and so it must not be the will of God. Folks, anything that we do for the Lord that is worth doing for the Lord is going to have obstacles and problems. When we have this definition of living out the will of God means that it's smooth and it's easy and everything always falls right in place, usually that a lot of times that indicates we're not in the will of God. Because the will of God and answering His will and living out His will is no guarantee that it's going to go smooth and easy. It's usually a guarantee there are going to be obstacles, there are going to be problems. And you see so many times we miss the will of God because we give up because of the problems and the obstacles when they are the very thing that are testifying to us that it's the call of God and the will of God. And that's what Mary and Joseph ran into, one obstacle after another. But those obstacles were not that it was not God's will. It was rather a confirmation that it was God's will. See what's going on here. They're making an 80-mile journey down to Bethlehem. But they are fulfilling prophecy of Micah 5 too the whole time that they're going there. And what they look back on and realize is that Caesar Augustus, who thought he was God, was really a puppet in the hand of God directing them from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And the only reason that anybody today even cares about Caesar Augustus was because he was directly involved in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and where it took place. If it hadn't been for Jesus being born, he'd hardly be mentioned in history. He owes any mention he gets in history to the real Son of God who was born. You see, we have to climb to heaven to get an understanding of what God's doing and how He's doing it. And only from heaven's perspective do we understand that the toughness is God living out His will. Notice verses 6 and 7, how God accomplishes His will uniquely. 
They get there and he, to Bethlehem, they say, no room for you. Then she gives birth and she lays Jesus in a manger. Now, we sing away in a manger, no crib for a bed, and talk about all that kind of great stuff, and it's so fun. But a manger was a feeding trough for an animal. That's all it was. It would have smelled like a feeding trough. It would have looked like a feeding trough. And the last time I was in a barn, it didn't exactly smell great. So you got Mary giving birth to a child that she is placing in a feeding trough with straw. Now, I again ask you, how would you feel like... I mean, I would assume most of you that are in here gave birth in a nice hospital. How would you like to be giving birth and putting your child in a feeding trough with straw? And that is exactly the situation here. And God doesn't give any explanation as to why He is making this situation as difficult as He is. And folks, most of the time, God doesn't explain what He is doing and why He is doing it. If our obedience waits on an explanation from God, we will never be obedient. And the reason so often we say, I don't know what God's will is, and I can't find God's will, I can't live in God's will, is because we're always saying to God, explain to me, explain to me, explain to me. And God is saying back to us by His silence, I'm not going to explain to you. You just do it. Because obedience is based on faith. It's not based on explanations. So I'm just going to do, Lord, what you told me to do. Notice the provision that God uses here. It's the provision of a manger. It's the provision of straw. It's the provision of a stable or probably a cave. Man, that's not the kind of provision you expect out of God. I mean, if this is His Son, shouldn't you have a, you know, a great escort of angels that would attend His birth? Shouldn't He be born in the finest place? Shouldn't He have the best clothes to be have placed on Him? Shouldn't He have the nicest atmosphere in which to be born? Shouldn't that be the case if it's the Son of God? But look at this provision that He's got. He's got straw. He's got a man. There's not much provision. How many times does God disappoint us in the way He provides for us? Now, we don't like to say that, but in reality, we get ticked off and mad with God a lot of times because God doesn't provide the way we think He should provide. He doesn't provide when we think He should provide. And the other game we tend to play with God is that in our American Christianity, we rave about God and brag on God when God seems to provide the way we expect Him to and the way we want Him to. And then when God doesn't do that, we just sort of ignore it or in some cases just walk away from Him in total frustration. But God was providing the way He was providing because of what He wanted to accomplish that night. I want you to think about this. God sent His Son, and the whole reason He sent His Son was to reach people and to identify with people and to touch people where they are in life. So who's the first people that find out about Jesus that night? Shepherds. 
If shepherds are going to identify with Jesus as the Son of God, where not better to go to find the Son of God than a stable? Why not a better place than a bunch of straw? Because that's what they trafficked in all the time. Why not with a bunch of animals that acted like animals and smelled like animals? Because that's what they were around all the time. You see, when the shepherds stepped into the stable and saw Jesus, they were totally at home. They would not have felt at home in a king's palace because they never went to a king's palace, but they could really identify with a stable because that's where they hung out all the time. You see what God's doing at the very onset of Jesus' birth is he's saying, I'm putting him in a set of circumstances that's going to fit exactly the group of people I'm trying to reach tonight, and that's a bunch of shepherds. And you see, when God takes our lives and provides for us, but not in the way we thought he was going to provide for us, what's he trying to say to us? He's trying to say, I want to use your life to reach and connect to people with where you are in the journey that they will understand. If it's smooth and easy and everything falls in your lap, they're not going to identify with you. So discern what God's doing in his provision because he's connecting you right to where he wants you to accomplish his will. There's a what to his will, and there is a why, but he always won't, often will not explain the why of it. Now, notice verse 7. God uses humility. God uses humility. Man, there was humility all over the place. When you're in a stable of somebody else owns, giving birth to a child that you're putting in a feeding trough with a bed of straw... That is humility. That is a set of humble circumstances that you've got to deal with. Can you imagine how you would have posted something like that on Facebook? Gave birth tonight in a stable with straw and animals. I can imagine most people either wouldn't have responded because they thought it was so ridiculous it couldn't be true or they'd have sent back their sympathy. Sorry, you had such a worse set of circumstances. Jesus' birth was literally below that of a slave in those days. But you know what God's trying to teach us? He can get his work done, his most important work done, using straw and wood and a stable. You see, so often we think God cannot get his work done unless he does it the way we think he's going to do it. And God's saying, I can use straw and I can use a stable to get my work done. Never underestimate what God can take and use to accomplish his will and get his work done. And the humility connects to people. If nothing else connects with people, humility connects with people. I want you to see this. When she gave birth to Jesus and the way she gave birth to him, the place she put him, didn't look impressive. But God's not interested in impressing people. God is interested in reaching people. God is not interested in impressing people. God is interested in changing people. He could care less about impressing people. 
He cares everything about connecting to people and changing people. I want to submit to you that I believe one of the reasons the church in Western culture, and in particular the church in the United States today, is so inept at changing culture and connecting with people is that we are more concerned with impressing people than we are with connecting to people and changing people. We have bought so many times into the the lie that what impresses us impresses God and everybody else. So the bigger you are and the more money you've got and the more you are out there on television, etc., the more important you are. And we tend to do that with churches. The bigger they are, the more impressive they look like, the more important they are. But that's not the story in Luke 2. And what impresses us doesn't impress God. God is looking for humility. And God's going to do whatever He can to make us humble so that He can take us and He can use us to His glory. And God so many times forces us into that place of insignificance in order to make us caught up in the divinely significant. And notice what happens in this story. God comes to them and says, I'm going to use you in a powerful way. But then He says to them, get out there and walk 80 miles in the desert. Have your baby in a stable You're going to suffer. You're going to sacrifice. This is going to be tough. If you look at most churches today, just about every one of them, what do we say to people when we want them to come visit our church? Look at our programs. Look at our activities. Look at how good we sing. Look at how great the preacher preaches. Well, in their case, may not say that. But anyway, look at all the stuff that's out there that we got going for you. What are we basically telling people so often? We're going to entertain you. We're going to give you this. We're going to give you that. When was the last time you saw a church brochure that said, come visit our church so you can sacrifice for Jesus? Come visit our church so we can show you a place where you got to give up something for the Lord. We condition people from day one to walk in the door, to get, to receive, to have. We tell people, come to Jesus because He's going to bless you. He's going to give you all kinds of stuff. He's going to make your life so happy. We don't tell people, come to Jesus so you can lay down your life for Him. We don't tell people to come to Jesus so you can sacrifice something for Him. And may I say this, in my opinion, we are birthing and have birthed a Christianity in the United States that often has nothing to do with what's in this book. That's the reason it is so powerless and impotent. Because what you see in Luke 2 was what God did with His own Son and with the folks who followed the first time. Was, Listen, you got to sacrifice. And this is going to be tough. And this is going to be difficult. But let me tell you, after the sacrifice and the difficulty, what's laying in that manger in some artificial baby, you got the real thing. you got the Son of God on your hands. And He's going to connect with people. You see, when the shepherds walked in there that day, they were not impressed, but they connected immediately with that baby, and they were changed, and they walked out of there and said, we got to tell somebody about what we've seen and we've experienced. And when we really connect with Jesus, we got to tell somebody. 
about what we have experienced. I've told you often, probably tell you a few more times while I'm with you, about that farm down in Gretna. Let me tell you about one of my favorite places on that farm. It's cutting right through the middle of that farm is a creek. And that creek is fed by a spring. If I get on that farm, I always go down to that creek. Some of my finest childhood memories are at that creek. Now, some of you understand what I'm saying about this. You get down on a farm, it's the creek, not necessarily the creek. I was down there a few years ago. I was on that farm by myself or down there by myself, and I, I just went and stood in that creek for a while. The water doesn't come up much more than your ankle. I just sort of stood there in the creek for a while. If you go back up and see that spring, that spring is nothing to get excited about. It's just a little place and you see some water there. It's pure cold water, but just a little place with some water. You go stand in that creek, that creek is nothing to be impressed with. But for decade after decade, as long as my family can remember, that spring has been supplying that creek. And that creek has been bubbling and rolling through there. I had an aunt that was baptized in that creek years ago where they dammed it up and baptized her in it. I want you to think about this little spring, totally unimpressive, little creek on a farm, totally unimpressive. But you've got to have a mighty source of water underneath the surface to supply that spring in that creek day after day year after year. Even when it was dry and they had drought on that farm, if they had to irrigate off of that creek, they would do it because the source of water underneath the ground was so strong and so constant. You see, what was on the surface looks insignificant. What's flowing underneath the surface is extremely significant. And this is what I believe God is saying to us in Luke 2. If you try to discern my will on the surface, it will always look insignificant. But I want you to understand that underneath the surface, the power of Almighty God is at work. My creek may not look significant. That little spring of what I started in Bethlehem may not look significant but all the power of God is flowing underneath the seemingly insignificant. And folks, whatever God calls us to do and wherever God has for us to be and whatever He's doing in your life, on the surface, nine times out of ten, it will look insignificant. But if it is of God, the power of God is flowing through your life. And what He's doing is eternally significant. Let's pray.